Hello everyone, this is Andrea, and welcome to show number 12 in Taking Charge of Your Life. So today I am thrilled and I'm loving what I do when I get to interview somebody that has been instrumental in my life, and I take these opportunities, they're like a payback for me. And so I'm talking to John Carroll. He is my very dear friend, and he's really an extraordinary human being and healer. So multifaceted that instead of me giving too much background, I'm going to just allow John to share some relevant points that will help us focus our show today. And so with that, hello, John. Hello, how are you? I'm really well. Thanks for showing up Sunday morning. You're welcome. I want to start today by saying this recording call is number 108. How about that? Okay. And today is 9-18-2016, which is a 999 which equals a nine. Which is turning so, to spirit. Say that again. Which is turning to spirit and perfection. Yeah, and a lot of completion. And pretty incredible. I mean, this is a nine nine nine. And and really we've been through a lot of things lately. It does feel like some things are coming together for people. So maybe we'll get into that a little bit. But I think I want to just ask you to start what you feel is the most relevant uh, points in your life that have led you to do the work that you actually do now. And if you want to start out by saying what that work actually is, you know, just in some kind of, you know, concise form, what would that be? Well, when I was a child, I got sick. They didn't ever figure out why and how I got sick. But I lapsed into a coma. I was pronounced dead the third night. Had a near-death experience. I was gone over 20 minutes. They, when they brought me back, they didn't want to bring me back. My father and sister, they tried being a lawyer that he was, and they did. And when I came back, my I was paralyzed from the neck down with permanent brain damage. that had never functioned. They prayed over me. Two days later, I got up and left the hospital. My grandmother told me I had this gift from God. I had to use the gift I was given with my hands, which I didn't understand at that age. And then um, over the years, things started to happen with people who were having trouble. I'd see things. I'd see visions about people and tell them about it. And I was considered a bit of a weirdo back in the 60s, early late 50s, early 60s. And then when I went to college, um, it started to really open up. In 68 and 69, I started having, you know, hearing conversations with people across campus and um, visions. Like I saw a guy jump off the balcony. I ran upstairs and caught him by his legs. And I really couldn't answer why I was able to do these things. I just accepted them. But my uh-huh. grandmother would always hold my hand and say, remember your gift. She said, don't forget. So I was going to, I opened a corporation. I kind of let this all go when I met my ex-wife. And, um, I had a corporation for 22 years. I worked in the field of dental technology for 28 years. And I was going through a divorce when I met my teacher, Gerald Epstein, who was um, teaching visualization. 
and imagery. And I knew nothing about this stuff. And he was talking this weekend about morphology and face reading and the science that came from the Bible. And he was talking about how imagery is um, is a, a three-dimensional form but no substance and how you see things in pictures and the picture language is the language of the mind, which, again, I didn't understand what he was talking about. But then as he learned about it, and realized how it taps into the morphogenetic field and the storehouse consciousness. And we all have this within us. And it's just a matter of tapping into it and bringing it out to help us see what's revealing in our own lives. Okay, so I want to ask you one question before you go forward. And that is, what is the morphogenetic field? Is that part of our auric field? It's No, it's it's outside of us. It's it's in the consciousness. It's like the warehouse consciousness. Mm-hmm. The warehouse consciousness. Morphogenetic field is the, um, the, the form. So we go from formless to form. And imagery brings us from the formless to the form also. Mm-hmm. And, and and like morph is a word that has its roots in change, right? So something can right. change right. due to something else. So, uh, so what you're saying, we're really dealing with the principle that once understood, something can actually change its form, especially if it's allowed to by spirit. Would right. that be accurate? Imagery, that's what it does. It changes from the formless to a form. Uh-huh. Okay. It's part of how I do my work. It's also, I do, um, the morph is also the face. Morphology is a science of face reading. This tells us about the person's temperament, their personality, their strengths, their weaknesses, the type of career, um, type of relationships, type of vacations, the type of diet, the supplements, things that work. Um, it's also used as in France as part of a diagnostic tool for training, for working people with, with their health. Um, it tells us about things that are going on to the face, what's happening in the physical body. It's a very powerful tool. I didn't know anything about it. When I met Jerry, I knew this had to be truth because as he described these things, it just made perfect sense. Yes. And so to be real clear for a lot of people that are going to be listening, um, they know that I have studied morphology with you, or at the very least, if they don't know, they know now, and that I have applied some uh, morphology in my work probably because I'm a sanguine, right? And I just want to jump into things once I understand them at all. Right. And it's worth kind of bringing in, we don't have to go into all the types, but I bring in the sanguine because we do have uh, some people who have requested that we do some healing work with them today. And I might just chime in and say something like this, I know she's a sanguine or something like that. Well, yeah, predominantly we're a sanguine country. Mm Mm-hmm. So that helps also. Um, all right, so what would you like to So anyway, so... Is, 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 say a little more about sanguine before you go into the next piece. Okay, I was going to say something about healing first. Okay. So I just started to happen with the healing. Um, I didn't understand the gift, and I started using, using my hands with people going to hospitals, praying over people. I saw many things like cancer patients getting better, tumors disappearing, um things happening like almost immediately with many people. It doesn't always happen spontaneously, but a lot of times it did. And it made me realize I had to leave, I had to devote my life to this work and leave my corporation. And that's how I ended up becoming, doing the healing work rather than running, still continuing to run a corporation. So after 28 years, I walked away from that to do this work. Mm -hmm. I had been with my teacher, Jerry, 
I did imagery that weekend, and I was healed instantaneously, and I had been living on shots and steroids, sprays. I was allergic to many different things. Couldn't get a deep breath for 22 years, and um, everything opened up that weekend. And I threw everything out that weekend after the imagery work and did this practice. He gave me tools to use, and I my life changed that weekend. I do wow. I started on Monday. I started doing healing work. And... uh I devote, that was it. I devoted my life to this. I trained people into my work and left at the end of seven. It took seven years to train people in and leave. Mm-hmm. So here and did you have a piece of pizza? Wasn't that like the real telling? I was that very you... allergic. I was allergic. I'd go into shock if I ate anything like pizza with tomato or garlic or anything like that. And that mm-hmm. day, you're eating pizza for lunch. I said, I can. And he says, yes, you can. Now you, now you can. Now you can. I said, oh, wow, I can. I, I, I didn't have a problem with it. Not that I, eat, I don't eat tomatoes and garlic to this day because it just makes me too anxious, but I talk about that with diet-wise. Yeah. Just don't do well with that. <clears throat> and that was a key in when I came to see you. So I came to see you in, I think it was around 01, and my big complaint was I didn't have energy for my life, and I had lesions on my face that were very itchy, so the two big things were don't eat garlic, try not to eat it for 21 days, 21 being such a key, and and also that I needed to start eating meat again because I wasn't, and then I would have energy because I'm sanguine. So those two things were potent for me, and I still don't eat garlic if I can avoid it. Sanguine and I do- meaning blood and um, respiratory, circulatory for the sanguine, Animal protein is really required, and unfortunately with the stuff I see today, we're going, people not eating meat, certain types get really affected negatively, and it can make them very ill. I've had to put many people back on red meat who are getting, we're we're getting MS, we're getting um, cancers, the immune system was down, so by eating these certain foods, it helped bring their system, immune systems back into balance. And isn't there like an amino acid profile that shows up in red meat that really cannot be found anywhere else? There's a little three, bit? three amino acids that are in red meat that you can't get anywhere else. And not only that, the sanguine is the lion. The lion needs, is a carnivore, so they need to eat flesh. They're the only type that requires red meat in their diet, actually, is four different temperaments mm-hmm. in the Caucasian world. And mm-hmm. the sanguine is the one that requires the red meat. And this is such a big deal for me because I kicked and screamed, and I even remember years into it when I was watching a George Harrison movie, and, you know, he was a vegetarian, and, of course, I mean, he died of cancer, and and I was affected again. I was like, I'm not going to eat red meat, and you happened to call me that day with your intuitive sense, and I was crying because my cognition and my emotional life was not very stable because I hadn't eaten red meat, and you're like, when was the last time you ate red meat? And it, I could always go there. Or often, I will say, well, I can often notice. And it it does tend to really balance me. And You lose your center. You look at, like, fog brain and stuff like that, and you might not be as focused. Uh-huh. And like you said, um, George Harrison was a vegetarian, and that uh-huh. says something right there. You know, I understand why people become vegetarians. I tried it myself in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Pro- I protested war. I didn't eat for 22 days. I did many things, but after doing this work, the message was loud and clear that I had to go back and eat animal protein. Yeah, and I, I'm really bringing it in because, 
you know, when I say it was memorial for me, you know, being introduced to yoga so early on, and I just, it just seemed like that was what I was, the path I was to be on. And it was really not allowing me to have any energy in my life. And so, you know, I've always kind of internally talked to my own spirit and said, if it was another way, I wouldn't be eating meat. And, you know, I do have to in, in this body, at least for now. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a powerful day coming to see you and then also pulling that garlic out because I had been to uh, skin doctors and, you know, because I was having skin issues. So that was like the the topical um, uh, symptom, but really it was something I was putting into my body on a daily basis and not only that, several times a day. It's yeah, it's coming out of your skin. Yeah, so there you have it. I mean, it's like sometimes these really simple things are anecdotal, and it takes that meeting place of like somebody like you, who knew that day I walked in your door, that I was that was the information I was going to receive, mm-hmm. and it's been I a fun ride. Plan, I never plan anything with anybody that's coming to my door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think I'm pointing that out too because. Often our mind, especially if one is not feeling well, will go to a lot of conclusions. Oh, it's this, it's that. And in my path of health and healing, the people that I've gone to, you being predominant and an Amish healer well before you, I was always so surprised what I was told the day I went in when I had a certain symptom and what it was really about. And I'm very lucky I've had profound diagnoses, and I want you to talk about that just for a moment, because it's come up, like what that word actually means and how it's kind of a crapshoot. Which word? Diagnosis. Oh, well, we don't, you know, we use not logical, but uh, analogical work where, you know, someone comes in and says they have a bad knee or they bang their knee, and someone will say, well, you know, um, you got cartilage problems, you got this or whatever, they'll talk about what's wrong with the knee. And basically, I'll, first thing I'll say is um, with a left knee, I'll ask about the brother, sister, or relative that's very close to that they're angry with. And usually always is, uh, almost always is that person they're angry with. And once we do the forgiving of that, the knee starts to get better. Or someone who has um, pancreatic cancer or liver cancer, we talk about the illness, the component, the emotional component that's connected to it. And mm-hmm. the, people don't want to hear about a lot of it, but it's it's so profound in looking at the connection. When people come here, I say, well, look at this, look at that, and they immediately will say, oh, my God, I, uh, like a pancreas is a lot of times is bitterness. <clears throat> so we look at the bitterness or the lack of sweetness in someone's life, and we'll bring that into their life, and it's amazing to see the changes that happen. And I've had people with pancreatic cancer and other things who have recovered. Um, not that they're not, with, sometimes I'm working with doctors, sometimes it's on my own. This emotional component starts manifesting into a physical problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see what it is, and we, <clears throat> if we find the root cause or the tap root cause of the problem, we can make that correction, and we can start making changes happen. Mm-hmm. Everybody has an inner part that can help them heal. Mm-hmm. You have to tap into it and give it to them. It feels like it's a, a a direct way to find your own inner authority and to not be 
showing up somewhere wanting a doctor to be master over them. Um, I mean, I can or speak. To, yeah, or anybody. You know? Yeah. Now, now I I call it the meeting place. But where do you find that the healing really does occur? Like, what part is it to the person that shows up? I mean, I I have a clear image of what you do and how clear you are because I know you would say you don't do the healing. Right. But what part does the person play? What is that meeting place that actually creates a healing moment or like an aha or a release? Can you speak on that? Well, like I said, the visualization work is a three-dimensional form but has no substance. So it comes from the form. We, we do a visualization and all of a sudden they'll see um, something, a picture of a, an organ or a person or something like that, and they'll actually, we make it, we see what they looked at, we tap into that, and we make a correction, and the, the healing begins already. We all have this, this uh, accessibility to the morphogenetic field or the consciousness, and imagery is the universal language of mankind, so when we talk about the Life with spirit, we talk about quality giving birth to quantity. So we're connecting to that higher part of us that knows everything. Quality giving birth to quantity, meaning, say a little more about that. Well, as a quality, um, as we see the bigger picture, we start to see the value and the quantity of all these possibilities that are out there. Okay, like the limitless self. It's not a limited form, it's a limitless form. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. Beautiful. So the science that says experience creates you, we teach in this work experience um, beyond the experience. There's something Mm -hmm. beyond that 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 comes up. I, I recall in class where there was a type, and I believe it's a sun, and so this is where planetary aspects do come into morphology as well, for people that probably don't know about it. But you would, you would often say that sometimes a sun type can't do imagery. Right. Sometimes an earth types, in the, in the, in the um, bilious types, uh, the earth can't, doesn't do well with imagery usually. Same types can't <laughs> visualize, so we do it. They, they're more visual. They're more aesthetic and looking... They can't use an imaginal world. They, they're they very practical about things. Oh, they can't use the imaginal world. And so that leads me to really the, the main question that I've been wondering about when I was preparing to talk with you is what is the difference between like, imagination, visualization, if there is any, but also daydreaming? Like that is a interesting thing, and I want to tell you why just real quick, because when I was in acting school, the the acting I studied was based around imagination. It wasn't a ba- based around sense memory, such as the method. Um, so my course of study, I'm, I used to go forward with my friend, and we would say, if we imagine these terrible things to get us into a scene, are they going to happen? Like, it was so cute. that we. And he said, oh, you girls, you know, just remember... You're just creating a reality for yourself that you can believe so that you can get into your character, et cetera, et cetera. So I find the imagination and then the daydreaming world, you know, they, like, like some of us are daydreamers, and yet that's a little bit of an escape. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Well, um, we say the sanguine sun, for instance, can daydream, can uh, meditate with their eyes open because they can look out a window and have absolutely no thought going on. Mm-hmm. And I find, you know, couples will come and say, he or she never shares with me what they're thinking about when they're looking out a window. I say, well, they're not thinking about anything. They go, that's impossible. You're always thinking. And no, that type doesn't always think. They mm-hmm. just, we call it meditating with their eyes open or uh-huh. sleeping with their eyes open. You think about a lion in the in the uh, jungle or a cat on a windowsill. They're kind of mm-hmm. looking out the window. There's really no thought going on. They're just there. Yeah. Don't, people misunderstand that. It's not caring or not sharing. They're not sharing anything because there's nothing to share. Does eye color come into that? I know that blue eyes, well, I like to look out windows and just zone like out. Blue eyes are more detached, a little detached. They're um, also the optimist. Um, yeah, they, they yeah. have to make sure they get enough sunlight because they don't, they reflect, they don't absorb sun, they reflect sun. So they need more sunlight, the seasonal effect disorder, things like that come into play with blue-eyed people a lot of times because they don't absorb the sun, they reflect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, why they reach a light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that applies to me. And aren't the green-eyed more the most detached? Yes, more detached. The green-eyed. I wouldn't say most, but more detached. More detached of the three eye colors. Right. A, yeah. Well, it's more, okay. more than three colors, but yes. So there's versions of them, yeah. Right, blue, brown, black, green. There's, some have goldish, there's different colors in the eyes. Mm-hmm. And some people's eyes actually will change as they're doing things. The colors can actually change as they're working. Have you noticed your eyes changing colors through the years with the work you've done? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they used to be very dark brown. When I'm working, sometimes they'll go very light green or they'll go blue. They change different colors. Yeah. I mean, people report back to me what they saw. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's worth mentioning that because um, we studied, I was with you for so many years in the morphology classes, and we would read each other's faces. And this is just proof to how we are all, we can be always in change, and which we are, as our faces would change. You know, like you would read me and you'd say, you're Mars, and then the next thing is, no, you're Saturn now. Oh, my, you're softer. You've gone to more Venus. And it's so, so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the front faces, the muscles change. The profile doesn't usually change much, but the front face, um, because the profile is more like the bone structure, Yeah. the front face is the muscles, and that's the personality, so we can be changing according to what's happening in our lives. I've had people walk in here and walk out three hours later and their face looked totally different. The family said, oh, my God, what did you do to this person, you know? And they, they said, well, they did visualization. They got in touch with that part of Mhm. Yeah, and so we really can change. So then there's that willingness. So I feel like in your work often you're kind of chiseling away or at least helping people become more willing to their healing. Would you say that's true? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting them in touch with them. They're coming here for help. So mm-hmm. we're just getting them in touch with what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes we can't do that alone, or many times, especially when we've become ill. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we need we need a little boost, so to speak. Mm-hmm. With the mental imagery, it's non-logical thinking. 
because yes. you see most of the work of the of medical world is logical. Um, mm-hmm. You learn there's a language, not the imaginal world, there's a language that experiences through pictures what's going on in our lives. Um, somebody will see a heart, and the heart is love. Anger is the liver. Different organs represent different things in the in the emotional world. Mm-hmm. And this should be revealed through visualization and imagery sometimes. And it also does line up with other modalities such as uh, the Chinese meridians and acupuncture and acupressure, how they will say, too, that the, there's an energy, um, emotional life to the different organs. Oh, so that's yeah. kind of universal, yeah. Right. If you, if you understand from that place, it's absolutely there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the medical world is starting to open up to that in this country. It's profound. You know, I was blown away. I was listening on NPR. This is about two months ago. And I know you've heard me talk about my Amish healer in Indiana who worked with chromosome. And I learned just a little bit from him. I mean, it was fascinating. But he talked about chromosome 21. And it was very important for me to understand that one because I went to him. He helped me really heal my hypoglycemia, which was severe but it was I was missing a limb of that chromosome. And he told me that that chromosome housed hypoglycemia, diabetes, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. Now, why this is relevant is that my mother and I went together at many times to see him. And I knew he had worked on her a lot. So when she started having a dementia kind of situation in her life, and the doctors were saying, well, she might have Alzheimer's. I said, no, she doesn't have Alzheimer's. I know he worked on her chromosome 21. And when, in the end, she had dementia, vascular dementia from having a heart attack. And it's a very different scenario. And why I'm bringing this up is on this show in NPR, I heard a guy come forward and say, do you know what we have discovered Alzheimer's come from? A chromosome. It's a deficiency in a chromosome. I'm like, hallelujah, because Wiki has passed and his work, I've never heard anyone talk about that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I know it's like it gave me a backbone for my own life and for my mother's when, you know, everyone was talking about what's going on with her. And so, you know, and I know Alzheimer's has a very different complexion than vascular dementia. Yes. Yeah. And she was a sanguine, and she had had a heart attack, and she had little mini strokes. So, of course, her cognition was going to become increasingly impaired. And and you you worked with her. Yeah, you worked yeah. with my mom. Yeah. Yeah, she was very willing to be to go into all those modalities, and it was incredible, her willingness and how open she was. Oh, well, she has you as her daughter. <laughs> it was, I know. I know, right? Yeah. So, you know, who knows, maybe someone out there will hear that because, you know, there's some people that plant this amazing work while they're here on the planet, and then there's other people that are somewhere kind of doing the same work. And then finally it will come and then it will relate, the masses will start to relate to it. Well, like that's and, consciousness, that's the storehouse consciousness. Everybody, we start to tap into that and realize, oh, my God, it's coming from many, like the morphology, they you know, the, the Jewish tradition, Ezekiel had the vision of the four temperaments or four bodies, the angels coming down with the four faces, the human, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. And then um, they thought they had this exclusive when they were brought to Egypt. There was the Egyptian sphinx, 
totally different tradition with the same knowledge and information as the face of the human, the body of the ox, the paws of the lion, and the wings of the eagle. So it's a different tradition. And if you go to the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's three different traditions, same knowledge and information. Because the, it's warehouse consciousness or morphogenetic field has all that knowledge and information. It's just, and each religion, faith, whatever you want to call it, taps into it in their own way. And this morphology, from what I've learned from you, which came from Colette originally, which you have always said France has incorporated it, especially when it comes to, like, let's say, plastic surgery. They let you know you change an outer thing, your inner world will change too, right. that you have right. to touch with that. And, um, it affects my, the personality. Yeah, it affects the personality. The large nose might get it short, shortened and it will become short-tempered. Um, large nose means patience and tolerance, long large nose, and they all of a sudden become short, shortened, they become, uh, you know, they become short-tempered and impatient. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it. I have definitely seen it since I studied with you. And it feels like an oral tradition, and I'm saying that because only once did I go to a bookstore and look it up, and it was really not, like any book I found was really not. Right, it's passed on... <laughs> through the education, not through books, because mm-hmm. there's so many variables to it, and you need to learn that work in that in that setting. In the setting, yeah. I mean, we spent, we loved hours visually looking at each other and, you know, increasing our awareness in what we're calling morphology. Um, I, love, I, I really love it. And it's interesting how I think if I'm working with somebody uh, one-on-one, and I think sometimes I just take in the morphology, and I'm not even knowing that I'm doing it, but it's right, certainly it becomes intuitive. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. As you use yeah. it, you start becoming more and more intuitive. But sometimes you don't even realize you're using it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a great conversation! I I feel like it's it's so important, especially in a sanguine culture that has a tendency to be leaning toward uh, glamorizing the youth and also being very superficial sometimes in how we present ourselves, that if people knew more about morphology, they wouldn't have debacles in plastic surgery because they really need to be educated that something profound will change inside of them. And it doesn't mean plastic surgery is negative. It can be very helpful and positive for people also. Um, How have you seen that? I know we talked about that in class before. How have you seen it be very helpful for somebody maybe being in their life better? Well, I'll I use an example of the mouth because um, I had owned a dental lab. So people whose teeth are out too far become very aggressive. And if we bring the teeth in, it calms them down. Um, in dental, we, in this country, we should teach the doctors, the orthodontists, that you know, when they bring the teeth in too far, the person we see them in life, I'll say, well, you really eat yourself up a lot or judge yourself a lot, don't you? And they say, how do you know that? I say, your teeth are turned in. So they eat themselves up, in a sense. <laughs> when the teeth are out too far, they become devouring or aggressive, and they want to take over. And we, you know, we can, we can change, like, the space between the teeth can be more of an amoral way. We put close the gap, they become more in a moral alignment, um, different things. But yeah, I've also noticed that, okay, let's take David Letterman, for example, and 
you know, John Mellencamp, two Hoosiers I'm very aware of, and they both had the space in their teeth. Actually, my father did as well. And they seemed like to be real independent thinkers going their yeah. own, like, they have their of their own moral. They're amoral. They have their own way. But amoral sounds negative. No, there's no negatives. So amoral doesn't mean lack of principle. No, no. It's just a different way. Uh, just a different way, like your own. Because it's very... It's a very powerful thing. So if, uh, and I have told people who've had kids that I've noticed might end up having a space in their teeth. And I said, if you can leave that alone, you will help that person come in with what they came into experience. I would close the gap. Say that in again. This, in this work, we would say to close the gap. You would say to close the gap. Yes, absolutely. Huh. That's interesting. For all those years, I thought you uh, meant the other way. So no, no, it. no. We say to close the gap because they they'll break they break the moral codes. They'll break the rules to a level that can really get them in trouble. Hmm. The gap helps bring them back into the moral code or the alignment, if you want to call it. All right. Well, my sister is uh, Pam. You're in luck because we had always talked about that. She had a gap, and she had. Uh, uh, braces. So, um, uh-huh. Oh, it's so fascinating. I just love this kind of thing that deals with nature and the harmonics of the the whole world. And like you said, the morphogenetic field. It, it, do you, is the morphogenetic field related to the Akashic Records? It's all that knowledge out there. It's um, not, uh-huh. you know, the Akashic Records kind of keep it, uh, an accounting of your life and how you live, right? Yeah. That's a little different. Okay, so I have one more question before we get into um, working with some people. And, you know, we've joked, or at least I've joked, and you and I, you know, we're having a pretty sober conversation, but you and I are very lighthearted together, and we joke a lot, and that's the thing I love about you, John. And well, that's the first thing I teach is to, to be lighthearted, right? Every tradition, yeah. except in psychology, talks about this lightheartedness. You know, in the Christian world, Christ said, only as a child can you come through the gates of heaven. The Buddha is laughing, the Japanese is dancing with his fan. Um, you got the Jewish tradition saying, thank God for each breath and be joyful. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, they have the scales of justice. Um, and on the Day of Atonement, they put your heart on one side and they put a feather on the other. If your heart's not as light as a feather, you failed life. So all the mystical and spiritual traditions talk about keeping this lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. And you know, if I jump back to the medical, um, the science... The science that we study in this world right now in medicine is that experience creates you. And we teach belief creates the experience. So we can change, through belief, we can change our experience. Mm-hmm. We can have mm-hmm. a dream, a negative dream, a nightmare. And if we correct the dream, we can change the whole energy of the person because it's pre, it, everything's, they say, predestined, but we can change how we get there. So if you're awakening from a disturbing dream, is there something that... Yes, we would have you go back into the dream and make a correction, whatever it has to be. Mm-hmm. Because the dreams are revelatory. They're revealing something about, you know, the first person in the dream is an embodiment of ourselves. So that person in the dream is showing us something about ourselves that hasn't come out yet or is beginning to uh, develop. Um 
I had a dream about my teacher recently. I called him up to say, you know, in the dream you were sick, you were in the cafeteria, and I, and he said, well, what, what do I represent? I said, well, spirituality and getting an alignment. And he says, okay, so you must be getting an alignment, and you're, you're very, you're getting to that spiritual place, and just different stuff like that was going on. And I went back in the dream. He was laying his head down in this cafeteria. I don't know if you remember the old Horn and Hardhead places in New York City. They had these little nickel things you paid for your crocks of beans and stuff. And he um, was in this place and leaning down. I walked in and saw him, and he was not looking well. So I went back in the dream, and I saw me walking him, him greeting me, saying, Oh, hi, how are you? Let's have a meal together. And he was healthy and strong. And so it was revealing something that I had to look at in my own life which was, like I explained to you about my back surgery, it left me in a positive way, not a negative way afterwards. So when you say go back into the dream, in that particular one, did you go back days later? No, you want to do it within 24 hours. You want to get in touch, actually, with the person in the dream because there may be a message that you have to give them that they're not, that you may not know about and they may not know about yet. I always say contact the person within 72 hours of a dream. Yeah. Yeah, I've always remembered that. Yeah. Okay. And so once again, it's kind of like going back to a scene. You know, it's like you take a still or a scene from a film, and you're going to go back and you're going to correct it, as you said. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Without judgment, you're just going back to correct it. You're not doing right. criticism. We're not judging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We want to see what's revealing to us without judging mm-hmm. also. It's just giving us a message. Mm-hmm. Dreams are revelatory. They're... Um, they reveal to us what's happening in our inner world. Hmm. You know, unfortunately, oh, it's just a dream. Our work, no, it's a profound thing that's being revealed to us. Yeah. I remember when we first started talking about having this phone call, weren't you considering uh, doing a, an Ezekiel-type uh, visualization that we could uh, do together uh, that people could uh, could experience? Yeah, we Is that correct? Does that seem like something that you'd want to do now, or is there any is there any other one that we could do as a you know if we do it together, then other people can experience it. We give a little instruction as to how to do it. Well, I hear from what you're saying a lot of self judgment. We could do something about embracing oneself. Okay. All right. Yeah, let's go into a visual. Okay, so mm-hmm. we do this. Anyone that's listening, you would breathe out. Close your eyes and take a long exhale out of your mouth and a shallow inhale through the nose. Then another long exhale out of the mouth, another shallow inhale through the nose. And this should be done sitting down, not lying down. And one more time, shallow inhale through the nose and a long exhale out of the mouth. Sitting, we call it sitting in a pharaoh's position with the feet flat on the ground, the hands on the legs or on the armchair and facing the world. So you imagine looking into a full-length mirror at your own reflection and undress and looking at your reflection, ask yourself for forgiveness for any self-judgment or self-criticism and see the reflection smiling back at you, letting you know it's okay. Then imagine stepping into the mirror and embrace the reflection and sense and feel the reflection embracing you back. And become one with the image. And turn
turning around, step back out of the mirror in a new way. Put on a new set of clothes, turn to the right, and see yourself heading in a new direction. Knowing that you're bringing wholeness back to yourself, breathe out and open your eyes. Because we ask who's the judger and who's the judgee. They're the same person. So we have to stop beating ourselves up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody relates to that, how many times should we tell them to do that in a day? And I'd say twice 20- a day for 21 days to change your patterns. It's a, a lot of us do self-judgment, self-criticism all the time. We've got to lighten up on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, so we always turn to the right, too. We have to, the new way. I mean, we, I've right. been doing this for The right is years. present and future, yes. The, the mm-hmm. left is the past. We want to walk away from the past. Mm-hmm. Now, this is fascinating to me because I've done so many. I mean, I have a whole file with our visualizations that you've done with me. So I've done this one before. And, and you know what? I want you to guess what color of clothing I almost always put on when I'm going into the new way. Yes, probably blue or white. Yellow. Yellow, okay. Like I'm always putting on a yellow dress. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sun, <laughs> that's bright, that's spirit. Uh-huh. Yellow, yellow, yeah. yellow, gold, yellow or gold is purity. So. Mm-hmm. It always you feels need, like that's... So as a sanguine, you need to wear bright colors. Because mm-hmm. the blue eyes needs color, you know, aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it lightens you up. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wearing yellow right now, actually. Yeah. Well, yellow all day yesterday in Central Park. I was in the park all day yesterday in Manhattan. And you, and you wore yellow? Yellow shirt, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also like that intuitive self. You know, I often tell people that I'm working with, like, those little things, like when you get up in the morning and you you know, you can consider what you want to wear, and it's more like, it's kind of like a frequency or a resonance that, you know, when you can't get it right. All color has vibration or frequency, and Mm -hmm. we want to raise, elevate that frequency. Mm -hmm. Didn't Colette, your teacher in um, Jerusalem, didn't she say, she she never wore black, did she? I can't say that, but I know she had, you know, light colors. Mm-hmm. She's very, she always had think gold and, and you know burgundies and earth tones and all kinds of bright but bright stuff too. Yes. Mm-hmm. I do know that I feel the best whenever I've bartended or worked in a restaurant. It's really good to wear black, and it feels protective to me because those environments are very intense. So often, you know, waiters do or servers or bartenders do wear black, and it's just kind of accurate. Yeah. It protects. Yeah. It protects. Um, yeah. Yeah. Jerry has. Uh, I don't have it with me, but my teacher had a whole list of what colors to wear each day. Each day is something. Should be an island with day, like the day, yeah. like Monday, yeah. being Sunday, and uh huh. Right, right. All right. Well, we're in a Sunday, and here we are talking about yellow. Mm. So. Yeah. So. Well, I'm getting it. Ezekiel visualization? Um, sure, I'm not recalling it now. If you're feeling it, I'm game, and I'm sure it'll relate. someone will relate to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
So now you've already told people how to how to prepare. So if you want right. to do that. So we closed our eyes again. We're sitting in the feet flat on the ground, sitting up in an upright position, and hands on the armchair or on your lap. And they call it sitting in a pharaoh's position. And you breathe out three long exhales. So it's a long exhale out of the mouth, a shallow inhale through the nose. Another long exhale out of the mouth, another shallow inhale through the nose. And one more time. Long exhale out of the mouth, and a shallow inhale through the nose. Then back to normal breathing. And this comes from Ezekiel. It says, I am giving you a new heart and a new soul. You breathe out one time. And know the purpose of this new heart and new soul. And feel and sense that the heart is being put by God into you. And see how from this point you can reach spirit. And breathe out and open your eyes. Wow, John, it just made me feel so light to do that. And I saw the color, I saw pink heart just like going, 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 like moving up. Excellent. Very nice. Yes, it doesn't mean our other heart is bad, it's just we're we're repairing or fixing our heart from all the emotional things that have happened in our lives. Yeah, 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 not holding on, right? Not holding on, exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give up my old heart. I say you're not giving up my heart. You're getting something new. I had a thought when you said that. I'm like, oh God, people are not going to want to, you know. But that's the point. That's exactly that place where attach, like, really, what are we attached to? It is, and you know, this is a great place to bring in. Something I almost wrote in the newsletter, and I thought, no, I'm not going to write about it. I'm going to talk about it on a call with you. And that is as we're, oh, my God, I went completely blank. What the hell? Okay, that's the sanguine in me. That's so funny. Um, Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about attachment and not being afraid to let go. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, well, it'll come back to me. Okay. If it's, but it's like, it's kind of like, you know, why why we don't, uh, whatever it is inside of us that just, oh, I know, I know, okay. So let's say you, someone with any kind of illness, like you're always getting something out of something. And you and I have talked about this so many times. And what I mean by that is like you, you're going to get mileage out of something until you're not. Right? So okay, it's like, yeah. say to me, oh, I have this great pain. We say, oh, wonderful, we have something to work with. Mm-hmm. Right? Or someone will say, oh, I had this great break. I just, I had this real breakdown. I said, no, you had a breakthrough. It means mm-hmm. you can't do it that way anymore, and you broke through, and you're doing something different now. And, like, if somebody uses their illness, right, it's given them excuses. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, that's powerful. That's a powerful, like, you know, I know that as a kid I was sick a lot, and it excused me from school, sure. right? I mean, 
And then as an adult, that really doesn't work anymore. Like, that's not going to save me, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, like, keeping your life, so. Yeah. Okay, I feel like this is a really good time to go into some of the people that wrote in to me. Okay, go ahead. Okay. 